This is the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. Today, teaching minister Tim Peace will be teaching the message. So like I said, 2020, potentially good. For me, not as good as 2019. To be honest with you, 2020 probably won't even be as good as 2018 was. Because right out of the gate in 2018, uh, my wife Angie and I got to go with uh, Dee Dee and Shannon Bacon to uh, Israel and Palestine to see a bunch of uh, sites uh, where Bible stuff happened. And I have to be honest with you, I, I used to kind of call it a bucket list thing, but it it's been put back on the list because I really want to go back. Like I, I, I saw it and I'm very grateful for seeing the stuff. I didn't get to stay near long enough and there was so much more stuff that I want to see or spend more time at. But anyway, I, I won't sit here and pout about it because I did get to go and it was awesome. And the reason I tell you that is because this morning we're going to uh, start off a quasi-message series that's going to be talking about where we want to head as a church in, in 2020. And specifically, we're going to focus on what it means to be a church full of disciple makers. And this morning, I get the privilege to start off, but I also get to start off by talking about a subject matter that I will be up front, and I've already experienced this in one service today, causes a lot of stirring up of feelings and opinions this morning. So um, I'm just going to issue a trigger warning. I'm just kidding. Sorry. Anyway, I'll stop there. We're going to be talking about baptism this morning. And the reason is, is because when we look at the pattern of Scripture and we talk about making disciples, baptism is connected uh, with disciple making. And, And one of the things that you'll find in modern day church and all of the variety of denominations and traditions and beliefs about baptism is baptism has really, really, really been disconnected from the call to make disciples that Jesus issued to his disciples. And so we're going to start off 2020 uh, with that. And so when we were over in uh, Israel and Palestine, we got to see some really cool stuff. Now, I got really giddy at this site. Because this site uh, where this picture was taken is called Qumran. And Qumran uh, is a place that is by the Dead Sea. And if you are a, a Bible history nerd, you will know that at Qumran, uh, that is where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were documents written by a Jewish sect uh, that uh, kind of lived off the map in this area. And they, they, they viewed themselves as uh, special, called out by God to distance themselves from the, from the, the larger uh, expressions of the Jewish faith and kind of do things on their own. And so what they did out here is they lived in a commune. Uh, they had all sorts of rules and rituals that they followed. And they even wrote uh, a lot of uh, scrolls. Um, some of them were about life in this sect. Some people believe this group was called the Essenes. That's not definitive, but let's pretend that it is for a moment. But there were a lot of other things that were found besides the scrolls. The scrolls also contained our oldest copies of the Old Testament, and there were a lot of copies, some of them the full thing. So it was kind of a really cool find. But here there was also 
pottery, uh, places where uh, they were able to make food uh, with, uh, with fire and things like that. But there are also these ritual baths. And these ritual baths are interesting because while the Qumran people had these and you could say that they were kind of apart from the rest of the norm of Judaism of the day, you ended up finding these ritual baths all over the place. Anywhere we would go, we would find them. And the reason these are important is because a lot of Jewish people at the time of Jesus, and by the way, I should note, Jesus and all of his earliest followers were Jewish. Just so you know. So, um, sorry, I just feel bad that I have to say that today. But anyway, um, yeah, that's beside the point. Won't go there. Okay. Um, So, these ritual baths were uh, everywhere, and what they were used for were ritually washing oneself before partaking in any kind of community uh, act, including even eating. So, like, you could not eat uh, with a group of fellow Jews if you weren't ritually pure. And so, one of the ways to be ritually pure is people would go to these ritual baths. And what they would typically do, and you would see some of these in others, where you could see where there was a spot where there might have been a rail. And what the people would do is they'd go down one side, they would ritually wash themselves, and then they'd come up the other side, and then they'd be considered pure and clean and able to participate in whatever act was going on in the community. This was something that was important to a lot of Jewish people at the time of Jesus. And the reason it's important to us is because in the Gospels, and we call, the, we call them Gospels, they're good news, they're stories about Jesus. In fact, the, there are four Gospels in the New Testament. They're all biographies about the life of Jesus. And at the very beginning of the Gospels, there is a person by the name of John the Baptizer, And John shows up on the scene baptizing people. And he did that at this next site, which is called the Jordan River. And the interesting thing about what John was doing is John came on the scene. He was out in the wilderness. He ate locusts and honey, and he wore weird clothes. And he is described as this kind of wild man. But he's out there preaching to the people and calling them to repentance, And repentance in the Bible, it simply means that one is going to change their heart and direct their hearts back toward God. They may be going one way away from God and they've decided, no, I want to turn back to God. I'm going to to do a little turnaround and I'm going to do that. That's what repentance is. And so he's preaching repentance, but he's doing it for a very specific reason. He continues to tell the people, repent because The Messiah is coming. He says at one point, he says, I baptize you with water, but one who is coming that is greater than I, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His sandals, I'm not even worthy to get down and untie. And so repent and prepare the way of the coming Messiah. So John baptizes people. Now, the word baptism in the New Testament is a Greek word. It's baptizo. That's what the word is. You know, a lot of times us preachers will get up here and we'll be like, yeah, this Greek word means this. Well, actually, the Greek word meant what it meant, 
We just have English words to try to describe it that, that have different senses of what the word might mean, and context always matters. But here's what the English senses of the word baptizo are. It can mean to immerse, to dip, or my favorite, to dunk. I had a, I had a college professor that, that actually called John, John the Dunkist. And I thought that was fun. Because what the word really means, it means to take something and dunk it in water. And of course, in the case of baptism, it's to pull it back up out of the water. And so John is here at this spot, the Jordan River, and he's calling people to repent. And as their act of repentance, he tells them, be baptized, be dunked under and pulled back up out of the water. It's a sign of your repentance. And that's where Jesus shows up on the scene. Early on in the gospel, John's out doing his thing at the Jordan River. Jesus shows up on the scene and he tells John to baptize him. And John actually tries to dissuade him from doing that. He says, he says uh, I should be baptized by you, not this way. And, and Jesus stops him and he says, you know what, let's do this because it'll fulfill all righteousness. And so Jesus is baptized, and when Jesus is baptized, it says that the Spirit descends down upon him like a dove, and a voice from heaven declares, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And it's this act of submitting to John's baptism for repentance that launches Jesus' ministry career where he calls disciples and teaches them how to be followers of him, the true Messiah that the Jewish people had been waiting for. And as the story goes on, and this is a really, really short summary, I encourage you to read all four Gospels. It's really beneficial. But uh, Jesus teaches a lot of stuff and gets in arguments with people and, and, and sways some people. And eventually, some of the people that he got in arguments with decide, uh, we don't like you. We're going to arrest you. We're going to hand you over to Rome because those Romans don't like you because... You're kind of bordering on treason against Rome, and so they're going to crucify Jesus. And Jesus is crucified. But on the third day after his death, after he was laid in the tomb, God raised him from the dead, conquering death once and for all. And that's all I need to say this morning. See, guys, I'm just kidding. Actually, no, that actually gets us right to where we want to start this morning. Because Jesus is raised from the dead... And upon his resurrection, he shows up to his disciples, the, the followers that he made as he was doing his earthly ministry. And he brings them together, and he's about to ascend into heaven. And he gives them one last charge that we see at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And this is what that charge is. It says, starting at verse 18 of chapter 28, Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And with that, uh, as we turn to the book of Acts, Jesus is with his disciples and he ascends into heaven. And then at that point, the disciples are kind of looking around and they suddenly realize they got a mission. And so 
The disciples are waiting. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and dwells within them. And their first act uh, as the Spirit comes upon them on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is they go out and they start preaching. Start preaching in different languages to many different people that spoke different languages so that they could all hear the gospel. And Peter's sermon is highlighted in in Acts chapter 2. It's singled out. And we get um, his sermon, and he talks about who Jesus is, how people rejected him and handed him over, and he was crucified, but God didn't leave him in the tomb but raised him from the dead. And this is what happens when he preaches that sermon. It says in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 37, it says, When the people heard this, being Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So, if you're keeping score at home, all of Jesus' early followers and Jesus himself were Jewish, and they came out of a culture that focused on ritual purity, and part of that ritual purity was washing themselves in ritual baths. Then John the Baptist, also a Jewish person, comes into the wilderness and starts preaching repentance, and he does something different with water. Instead of telling people to ritually wash themselves, he calls them to submit to the water to be dunked by him into the water and brought up out as a sign of their repentance. Then Jesus does his thing. And he's raised from the dead. And before he leaves, he tells his followers, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is doing something different with baptism than John did. John was calling people to be baptized as a sign of their repentance. Jesus is telling his disciples that in order to make followers of me, Jesus, the Messiah, part of that includes baptizing them. And so this is what happens. Now, and I should point something out to have a little bit of a grammar geek moment. Um, when Jesus says this, it says go and make disciples in almost all of our English translations. But the interesting thing about that is the Greek word is actually a participle. If any of you like studying English and know what a participle is, a participle would be like instead of saying go in like a command sense, it would be more like saying going or as you are going. And that's really key for us today. Because it's easy to read this passage and say, well, that was Jesus' command directly for his disciples. But the thing is, is he basically told them, as you're going along throughout the world, encountering people of all languages and tribes and nations, as you're going about your business, make disciples. Which means we may not be going all over the place and encountering different people all the time, but guess what? Every one of us goes about our lives every single day. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, what Jesus said before he ascended to heaven to his disciples applies to you and me today. And so that's why I want us to remember something this morning. 
Baptism is a command for the disciple maker and a call for the would-be disciple. When Jesus did his great commission, as we call it, to his disciples, he was commanding his disciples to make disciples, part of which includes baptizing them. And when Peter preached the sermon on Pentecost to the hearers that were cut to the heart and wondered what should they do in response to the message they heard, he told them to be baptized. He called them to baptism. Or as my college professor likes to say, he called them to be dunked. Now, here's the thing about this subject matter. Uh, I saw Star Wars last night. I'm just doing this because my, my, my friend that went with me wanted me to work Star Wars. Thanks, Craig. Um, I'm not going to spoil anything here. But I can't talk to you about that movie if you haven't seen it yet. Number one, in this day and age, like you'll stone me to death if I spoil the movie for you. But on the flip side of things, even if you didn't care about being spoiled, if I start telling you about the plot lines and all the lightsabers and all this different stuff, and you have not seen the movie, you have no idea what I'm talking about, right? Everything that we enjoy doing in life, everything that we put our hands to to work on in life, everything about our context of modern relationships includes jargon that we're all in on. But the thing is, is that most of us in this day and age with different denominations and different church backgrounds or non-church backgrounds, because there's an increasing number of people that have never even been to church and can't tell Jesus from Moses. And that's not a slight, that's just reality. For, for most of us today, we do not share the same understanding when I say the word baptism that the early church did. We don't have the context. We don't have the assumptions. And so it's important that if we're going to talk about this in context of making disciples, that we grasp the reality that every passage in the New Testament is written with the assumption that the hearer already knows what baptism means, why it's done, and what it's for. And so this is why this is such a touchy subject matter because um, some people in this room were uh, maybe sprinkled as a baby, sprinkled on the head. Uh, if you are from a Catholic background or maybe a Lutheran background or a Methodist background, um, you know, there's all kinds of doctrines uh, why that gets done. But needless to say, uh, as entrance into the church from an infant state, babies are baptized. And that's what they mean by being baptized is being sprinkled on the head. There are some people in this room who are like me, and I'll get to that in a moment, that when you were called to faith, nobody told you to be baptized. They didn't include it the way that Peter and the rest of the disciples and the authors of the New Testament included it. So we have today different views on who can be baptized, what it looks like to be baptized, and whether baptism is even necessary at all, floating around in our heads in, in this room. And in many cases, it doesn't align necessarily with what Scripture teaches. And so I want to show us this morning not only uh, why this is important to us today, but also 
why things changed and changed so swiftly. And to do that, I want to share a story from the book of Acts in chapter 18. The book of Acts has about eight different conversion stories. Yeah, I'll say eight. Um, I'm a dork and I counted them up. And a lot of times when people from our church tradition, Christian church, Church of Christ, talk about baptism, we always like to say, well, baptism's the rule and there were exceptions to the rule. Well, here's the problem with the exceptions to the rule thing. Um, if you're a baseball fan like me, the, the rule in the Bible is what we'd call a short sample size. You know, you can't measure up whether or not somebody's going to be a good hitter off of eight at-bats. You know, you got to have thousands in there. That's why Joey Votto's awesome. Anyway, there are about eight stories in here, and things don't always happen in sequence in the story. And so a lot of people will say in rebuttal, well, how can you say that everyone should be baptized this way at this time when the story is never the same over and over and over again? And I want to tell you this story from Acts as a way to show you that reading the book of Acts and looking for the rule or the exception is the wrong way to read. There's a story in Acts 18 about a guy named Apollos. And it picks up Apollos' story in, chapter, or in verse 24 of chapter 18. And this is what it says. It says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him into their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay, I'm going to pause there for just a second before we get to chapter 19, so you can follow what's going on here. Apollos, just like all of Jesus' earliest followers, was a Jewish person. He's what we might call today a Messianic Jew because he was a Jewish person that believed in Jesus. There were other Jewish people at the time that didn't believe in Jesus, and those two factions of Jewish people got in debates over Jesus. And Apollos, being a believing in Jesus Jewish person, wanted to convince his fellow Jewish people about Jesus. So he was going to the synagogue and preaching. And I want you to catch something about Apollos here. Apollos apparently taught about Jesus accurately. So before we go any further, you should know that the scripture upholds the faith of Apollos. He knew Jesus better than most. But it also says basically that his understanding wasn't complete. And so two other followers of Jesus heard him in the synagogue and they pulled him aside, inviting them to their home and explained the rest of the story. And implied in that is that they explained Christian baptism or baptism into Christ and how it was different than John's repentance baptism. Now, he ends up leaving 
And so this is what it says in verse 1 of chapter 19. It says, while Apollos was at Corinth, so he's gone off from Ephesus, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. So now Paul has showed up where Apollos had been formerly teaching people. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So Paul is now teaching this small group of guys from Ephesus who the implication in the story is were taught by Apollos before Priscilla and Aquila had corrected him on the baptism issue. And when Paul is teaching them, he finds out that the Holy Spirit hasn't come upon them. Now, the reason this is important is in one of those other exception stories, which we won't read today, Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. And this was after he had been shown a vision where he told God, I will never put anything unclean in my mouth. And God chastises him and says, don't you dare call anything unclean that I've determined to be clean. And the reason that he was shown this vision and has this exchange with God is because God's going to send him to the house of a Gentile, a house that a Jewish person of that time probably would never even step foot in at risk of being ritually unclean. And he goes and he shares the gospel with them. But something happens when Peter preaches to them. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells within the Gentile believers before they are baptized. And now if you're keeping score, you might say, well, ha ha, you don't need baptism because the Holy Spirit, God can do whatever he wants. And that's true, God can do whatever he wants. And there's a reason God did this in this sequence. And that is because he knew Peter and Peter's flaws well enough to know that Peter probably would not have gone and baptized those believing Gentiles because of his wall between Jewish people and Gentiles at the time. And God decided to go ahead of Peter so that Peter would see the whole story. And once these believers had the Holy Spirit, Peter ordered them all to be baptized. Now, the reason that that's really cool is because in the Great Commission, the thing Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended up in heaven, he not only gave them the command to make disciples, to baptize, to teach them, but he also gave them one can we, command we often miss. And that is, remember. Sorry, I shouted that. And I just got excited. Remember, <laughs> I am with you always. God doesn't send his disciples out on their own. And in the book of Acts, we see God working ahead of the disciples to help them along the way. That's why the pattern never stays the same in the book of Acts. It's not that that wasn't the goal of the early church. It's that God would act when he needed to so his disciples would complete the picture and complete the task. And yet, in every single instance where conversion happens, where followers of Jesus are made in the book of Acts. Baptism is a part of it because that's what Jesus commanded his disciples to do. I want to leave us with one more passage, and it's 
from Paul in his letter to the churches at Galatia. I call this Galatians. And it's in chapter 3, verses 26 through 28. He writes this, he says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here's the thing. In the early church, when the disciples went and they made disciples, all of them fulfilled Jesus' command to baptize those that would become disciples. It was so widespread in the early church that everyone that wrote a letter in the New Testament just assumes their audience knows what baptism is about and talks to them as if they are one body because they've all gone through the same thing. And that's why, really, when we talk about baptism, a lot of us that have been baptized, we think about it in terms of, well, I've got to be baptized to be saved or something like that. And so we get baptized and we put it in the rearview mirror. But if you're a follower of Jesus, baptism never goes in the rearview mirror. Because you've been called by our Lord and Savior to go and make disciples. And if you're going to go and make disciples, part of the qualification for making a disciple is baptizing them. Putting them under the water and raising them back up out. Because they are being baptized in Christ as a profession of their faith. They become one in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection when they come up out of the water. That is why baptism matters because it mattered to Jesus and his command to the earliest disciples and all of those disciples, when they went and made disciples, they followed that command. Now, here's the thing, though. In about the year 100, there was a, uh, there was a, uh, a book written called the Didache. It's another Greek word. It just means the teaching. So it's called the teaching. And it's purported to be the teaching of the twelve. And it has something to say on baptism, and I want you to hear what it says. It's interesting here. It says, but with respect to baptism, baptize as follows. Having said all these things in advance, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. But if you do not have running water, baptize in some other water, I guess still. And if you cannot baptize in cold water, use warm. We warm the baptistry here. Um, but if you have neither, pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Here's what happened. Even in the year 100 when that text is written by someone within the early church, the mode and method and meaning of baptism started to change. And it continued to change as denominations formed and people went about whether by necessity or just because tradition started to set in. But the thing is, is that while baptism changed over time, it doesn't give those of us that want to be followers of Jesus license to change what Jesus taught and what his earliest followers taught in the New Testament, regardless of how early on the changes started to happen. And I'll tell you that this conversation hits home with me. So many of you have heard bits and pieces of my testimony before. I came to faith when I was in high school, but I haven't gone into detail of what that looked like, so I will right now. 
I was brought to this church by a friend in my freshman year of high school. I was brought to the youth group, and the youth service was really weird. There was a punk rock group playing worship. My only exposure to church was pews and special singing in church. And so I liked it, but I was like, I don't know if this is even right. Oh, and by the way, my friend that brought me was a pothead, so that was even more peculiar. So I went, I enjoyed it, but then I got weirded out, and I didn't go back for a little while. But the youth minister here at the time, his name was Russ Howard. He invited me during my sophomore year of high school to an event that included some preaching and and some stuff like that. And so I went to that in the second semester of my sophomore year of high school. And at the end of that message, it was a gospel message that was preached. The, The person that was preaching said, if you want to become a Christian, this is what I want you to do. I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to pray this following prayer. And he spouted off the prayer. And I was convinced that I wanted to follow Jesus and this is what I was told to do, so I did. And that was the end of it. The minister never stopped to tell me to be baptized like Peter would have, like the disciples would have. But my friend Russ invited me into a a discipleship group at that time with a few other guys And we started to go through the Bible together. And over the next year, he showed me the pattern in Scripture that we looked at today. And only four sections. I mean, there's plenty more. But he, he, uh, he showed me this pattern, and he nudged me toward the water. And on Wednesday, March 11, 2001, literally only like eight days after I started dating my wife, <laughs> actually, I have, I'm weird, I remember dates, sorry, um, On March 11th, I was baptized with a few friends in my discipleship group by my youth minister, Russ. The reason I tell you this is because I know what it's like to have been told to respond to the gospel in a certain way and to look back and feel like, man, was was my friend Russ telling me I wasn't saved back when I made that decision? Was I cheated by that minister that didn't tell me to be baptized? I ask all those questions. I still ask them today. Here's the thing. When we talk about baptism, we're not making a pronouncement or declaration as if we're in God's judgment seat on whether or not you're saved or not based off of the mode or method or lack thereof of which baptism you had. But what we do here as a church, and the reason that we baptize by dunking people under the water and pulling them up out of the water is because that's what Jesus told his earliest followers to do. And when those earliest followers preached the message of Jesus and people asked how to respond, that's what they did. That's what they told them to do. And so the precedent we see in the New Testament is that if you haven't been dunked under the water and pulled back up out of the water and you're a believer, you should still be baptized in that way. And that's not a judgment on you. It's just the way that it is in Scripture. And so, I want to remind us of that thing that I said before. Baptism. Baptism is a command for all disciple makers, and it is a call for all would-be disciples. And so, I'm going to pray here in a moment. And I'm going to pray for two specific things this morning. I'm going to pray that as a church in 2020, as we look at what it means to be a disciple-making church, I'm going to pray that if you're a Christian that's already been baptized, 
that you will get baptism out of your rearview mirror and start putting it in front. Because there are people that you are called to disciple, and as a part of that, you're called to baptize them. And I'm going to pray for those of you that are either Christians and haven't been dunked, or people that don't believe yet, that something will, sorry about the pun, be stirred up within you to be baptized. Because as a church at Mount Carmel in 2020, we want to be a disciple-making church. And this year, we all want to be challenged to be disciple-makers in the way Jesus called us to. So I'm going to invite two of our friends to come down. They're going to be down here to pray uh, with you if you would like prayer at the end of the service. I'm going to pray now. If you would like to be baptized, I would encourage you to come down and tell one of these guys. They'll let us know. And we'll do that at the beginning of next service or in between services if you're like me and don't want to do it in front of a big crowd. I just had a few handful of people around me. Sorry. I'm an introvert. So let's pray and then we'll call it a day. God, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for a new year. We thank you for the hope uh, and the, uh, uh, just the, you know, the positivity of contemplating what a new year can be and what it can bring about in life. And God, as we as a church consider uh, what 2020 can be, God, I pray for two things right now. One, God, I pray for every person that is a follower of you in this room that we will take seriously the call to make other followers and that as a part of that, we will, we will consider bringing people to the water of baptism to be baptized into your name. And two, God, I pray that for those that have not been baptized yet, whether they don't believe in Jesus yet or whether uh, they, they believe, but they just haven't made that step yet. God, I pray that you will uh, help them uh, to come to that place where uh, they are ready to get into the water and be baptized. Thank you so much for being good to us. Thank you so much for loving us. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can find out more about us on the web at mtcarmelchurch.org.